We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 23, if you want to open your Bibles there. As we continue in the study through 1 Samuel, we're in chapter 23. title of the message today is A Duty to Act. A Duty to Act. You know, when I was going through paramedic school so many years ago, uh, we were trained in many different things. I, I learned the details of treating patients logistically. This is where they taught me all about you know, how to start an IV, how to read an EKG, how to determine what the different cardiac rhythms were, what was indicated for each rhythm, whether we were to you know, shock them with the paddles, and if so, how many times, and using how much voltage. And you know, as we started an IV, and they had a very heart rhythm, what medications we were supposed to give, intubating a patient, putting a tube into the trachea to breathe for them, and all of these things they trained us. These were the details of treating patients logistically, but they also trained us how to, well, we learned the duty to treat patients legally, the duty that we had to treat patients legally, and this is an important distinction because civilians don't have a duty to act, that's the legal term. Uh, civilians are not required to. Now, morally, I hope if you saw an emergency situation that you would react when somebody is in a situation, but as a civilian, you don't have a legal duty to act. However, the moment you put the uniform on, you have what's called a duty to act, and that means you don't have a choice. When you see somebody in medical need, that you respond and you provide the medical need that is required. I used to work with a guy, uh, used to in past tense, uh, because he found this lesson out the hard way. Uh, we were working 72-hour shifts. Um, I wasn't working with him on this particular shift, but he refused to call. He'd been up 50-something hours. They, they called him to dispatch him. And he denied the call. Well, he was fired and he had his paramedic license taken away because he did not fulfill his duty to act. And what we're going to look at today uh, is that in the life of David, he also had a duty to act. God had called him to be the future king of Israel, and he had a duty to God. And we're going to see what happened with David. Not only uh, that David embraced his duty, but also then the, the difficulties that David faced when he exercised his duty. And we're going to see that for us as Christians, we also are called to fulfill the duty. It doesn't matter who you are. The moment you entered the family of God, you received that responsibility, that duty to act. And, and so what does it look like through David's lens when he fulfilled his duty? And, you know, it's not, you know, it's not like a country western song played backwards. You know, it's not like when you become a Christian, you get your truck back and you get your dog back and you get your wife back. And, you know, it's not like that. What, what happens is when, oftentimes when you commit your life to the Lord and you step into service, you step into duty, well, people start shooting at you. And so it's not all puppy dogs and butterflies. And so we're going to see that David went through that as well. And so we're going we're gonna to eyeball that today. Let's just jump right into it. We're going to pick it up uh, in uh, chapter 23, verse 1. And here's my first point, just going into it. David was driven by duty. David was driven by duty. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1, Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Now you'll remember we left David off. He had been 
attacked by Saul, pursued by Saul, going through an intense persecution. And God, at, at this one given point in his life, took David to a, a place of, of refuge. And, and, and in that place of refuge, he, he uh, received encouragement, David elicited followers, his ear was open to the Lord, and when his ear was opened to the Lord, he was able to hear when God spoke to him through the prophet Gad, who told him, yeah, I, okay, God provided you this place of refuge, but now he's calling you to leave the place of refuge and go into the land of Judah. And that seems counterintuitive, because what was happening then is, you know, being pursued by Saul... Having now found a place of refuge, it seems not exactly the brightest move to go back into Saul's territory and put yourself back in harm's way. But see, David's ears are now open to the Lord. And so being open to the Lord, he's hearing, hey, this, this doesn't matter if this makes earthly sense. This is what God's telling you to do. And so David went into this land. And so there he is in this land. And now, you know, it's not bad enough that he's in enemy ter- back in enemy territory in terms of Saul's territory, but now what happens is these guys say, hey, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they're robbing the threshing floors. Now, Keilah was a, a border town in the land of Judah, okay? And so being this border town, it was about 12 miles from Gath, um, and, and roughly 10 miles west of the forest of Hereth. That's where Gad had instructed him to flee to. And so last week we saw David there fleeing to this, this forest of Hereth, which puts him about 10 miles west of this town of Keilah. Now, Keilah and the nation of Israel was an, a, a, a gregarian society. In other words, they, they, they made their living from agriculture. They survived based on their agriculture. And what was happening here, being a border town, being a place where the threshing floor was, so they would grow their crops and then they would take them into the threshing floor area and they would thresh the, the, the wheat and they would separate the wheat from the chaff and all. And here it is at harvest time. And so they're a prime target for their enemies and their enemies are looking, they want to steal their food. Now what's at risk here is not just their food for this year, but they're also, in taking all their crops, they're going to take their seed for next year. So this is really a dire emergency. Now, it should have been Saul's responsibility to take care of the people of Keilah. But Saul was so blinded in his anger, so blinded by his enraged you know, attitude and being threatened by David that all he could think about was getting David. So he blew this town off, shucked his responsibilities and didn't do what he should have done. And now David here is operating as God's man. God has shown up. God has anointed David to be the future king of Israel. He hasn't assumed the position, but God is ministering to his heart and he's got an an acute understanding, hey, I have a duty to act. I need to to take the steps to be able to go there. And and that's what we're going to see is that, you know, the words come to him. They're saying, hey, look, here's what's going on. The Philistines are are fighting uh, in this place. And uh, and so you need to do something about it. Now, in stark contrast to Saul, David reveals the heart of a true leader. 
Because what he does is he not only fulfills the duty to go and protect these people, but he does so at great personal risk to himself. And, and the fact that he's putting himself and his men in harm's way is not lost on his men. As a matter of fact, they start protesting. We'll continue there in verse 2. It says, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? Hey, I'm seeing this happening. Saul ain't doing anything about it. God, should I go and do this? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But... David's men said to him, look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we then go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? These guys are saying, look, dude, is, is one enemy and one army not enough for you? Well, you, you, need, you, you need to have somebody else. You got to fight on two fronts right now. This is, this is not a good idea. But see, again, David has the sense of his duty and his responsibility of the duty to act. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, speaking to the church in Ephesus, he says, Now therefore, verse 19, chapter 2 of Ephesians, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being uh, fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in the Spirit of God. Here's what Paul is telling the Ephesian church. He says, look, you're a member of God's family. This is is your family. And so God's fitting you together as one family all together. When when my kids were growing up, they're all all grown and they all have families of their own now, but when they were at home, I used to say, hey, listen, you're Leavenworths, and you're all part of the Leavenworth household. And that pretty redhead over there is my wife. She's not your maid. And so if you're going to be a member of this household, you have responsibilities. You have duties here in this house that you need to fulfill. And, and so that was our, our requirement. That was the way my children were raised. Look, you all have a duty. And, and just as, and I hope you do the same thing with your kids, is that you say, look, you're, you know, you're not King Farouk. We're not all waiting on you hand and foot. You're you're a member of the household, and being a member of the household means that you have a duty and you have responsibilities, and you're going to fulfill them. And and so for for us, that's the way I operated my home, and that's the way God operates His home. He says, look, we have duties, we have responsibilities, we have things that we need to do in, 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 in how we live and function in the body of Christ. We have a duty to act. Peter says something very similar to what Paul said to the Ephesians. I'll put it on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And here it is, 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now let me clarify this and just make it perfectly clear. He's not talking here about earning a right standing with God, about earning a relationship with God, about earning your salvation. No, what he's saying is, because you're saved, because you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And if you'll believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of the living God, that God raised him up on the third day after he died on the cross for our sins, then the Bible says you will be saved. And so, so salvation is by grace through faith. There's nothing you can do to earn it. But the moment you pray that prayer and the moment you become part of God's family, then this is where Peter's words come into play where he says, look, you're being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And you have to, as part of that family, you have to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And sacrifices are just that. They're a sacrifice, and God's calling us to sacrifice our time. He's calling us to sacrifice our talent. He's calling us to sacrifice our treasure in service to him. Now, will you notice also there in 1 Peter chapter 2 and the scriptures I'm putting on the board that Peter adds the phrase living stones, right? And, and the idea is that the, our duty to the church of Jesus Christ is something that we live out, In other words, every stone is critical to the ongoing work of God. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians. He said, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews. Some of us are Gentiles. Some are slaves. Some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Listen, 24 years ago, my wife and I responded to God's call in our life. And at the time, I was a baby Christian. And, and I mean, if you would have told me, you know, Assumptions was a book of the Bible, I would have assumed that it was true. You know, I mean, really, a baby Christian. And I'm looking for a, a church. We live in Menifee. There's no, you know, healthy church in Menifee at the time. And so we just felt like the Lord was leading us to start a Bible study in our home. And so we did. We, put, we started a Bible study, put our name on the pastor's wanted list down at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. I had never set foot in Calvary Chapel in my life. I just knew they had a good reputation for teaching the Word of God. So I'm like, all right, well, we'll do that. And God took that little Bible study and he grew it into a church of over 6,000 people. And, and you know, so... This had nothing to do with us other than the fact that we just said yes to God. And I think about what God has done. And that was, what, 24, 25 years ago. And I think about what God has done and the churches that have come out of that, the many churches that have been planted out of that work and the, and the, the thousands of people that have given their lives to Jesus Christ. We had several people, first service today, give their lives to Christ. We had dozens over the past several weeks make professions of faith, give their lives to Jesus Christ. We've seen God do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. We see the women at the women's retreat being ministered to. I was talking to to Sherry this morning who lost her husband Lee this morning. First thing out of her mouth she said to me when I got to the hospital, She said, Lee loved our church. 
She said, you have no idea how, how greatly this church, this local body of Christ has affected my husband. She said, he, he was, he was a, a, a fantastic husband, a wonderful father. He, he received discipleship from one of the men in our church, another fellow deacon, for, for, for months and months. And just grew tremendously. And, and, and all of that to say this, that I wonder what would have happened if I would have said no to God 25 years ago. What if when God burdened our hearts just to do a little study, a little Bible study with four people, and what if I would have said no? See, you have no idea what God wants to do and what he can do in you. And he can do amazing things through you. And he wants to do amazing things through you. And he wants to do amazing things through me. All he's looking for is a willing vessel that will recognize and embrace the fact I have a duty to act. I'm part of this family. And so the proper answer, the proper response is the response that David had just to be able to go, you know what? I'm driven by duty. I, mine is not to reason why, mine is but to do or die. All right, Lord, this is, you've called me to it, I'll do it. Well, not only do we see David driven by duty, but we also see, secondly, that David was directed by God. David was directed by God. Back in 1 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 4, it says, Then David inquired of the Lord once again, And the Lord answered him, and he said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And now it happened when Abathar, son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. Now, listen, I want you to take note of the fact as we read those verses that David was directed by God. You say, that's the point. Yeah, it is the point. And we have to really note it. You know, David was directed by God. See, because it wasn't so long ago that David wasn't directed by God. He was directed by his fear. He was directed by his flesh. Remember, he went to Nob. He's running from Saul. And he goes there and he goes to the house of the Lord, goes to talk to the priest. Great start, David. But then the fear and the flesh takes over. And before you know it, he's looking for a sword. Give me Goliath's sword so I can protect myself. Now, now he got Goliath's sword by trusting in the Lord by faith and using the weapons that God had given to him to fight that battle. And that's what got Goliath with his head bashed in with a rock. He, he used Goliath's sword to cut his own head off. But he never fought the battles of the Lord with that sword. But then through fear, through the flesh, that's the direction that he went in. And so when we see here now that David is directed by God, it represents a radical change in his life. It's been said, there ain't no teacher like the burnt finger. And what happened to David when he t- took Goliath's sword and he goes down to G- Goliath's hometown with his sword, should he be too shocked when he's promptly taken captive and imprisoned by the people of Gath? God set him free and delivered him from that. And so now Goliath or David is in a place where he says, you know, hey, I, I am not going down that road again. I'm going to trust the Lord by faith. I'm going to be directed by God. Just a quick little maybe 
line to jot down, take a walk with this, this week is, are you being directed by God? Or are you being directed by your fears? Are you being more directed by your failures? It's interesting, we wonder, it says that David inquired of the Lord, and we wonder, how did he inquire of the Lord? This is one of the questions I get as a pastor all the time. How, how, do, how do I inquire of the Lord? How do I discern the voice of the Lord? How do I know the voice of the Lord? Well, for David, you know, we, the text makes a point of saying that when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. You guys will recall that, that Ahimelech was the priest in Nob who, who Saul killed. Saul killed him, all the other priests. And, and so Ahimelech's son, Abathar, was the only one who escaped. And when he escaped, he took the ephod with him. Now, what was the ephod? The ephod was a special apron that the priests would wear when they were making their sacrifices. And on this apron was what was called the breastplate of judgment. And the breastplate of judgment had a pouch in it. And in this pouch, it contained something called the umen and the thumen. And, and, you know, the, the Urim and the Thummim, sorry. And, and so Urim and Thummim, you're like, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means lights and perfections. And it was a means by which the priests would inquire of the Lord. And, and we don't know exactly, historians can't, don't know exactly, theologians don't know exactly what the Urim and the Thummim was, but it's, it's commonly considered and, and widely expected that what it was was that inside this pouch there were two different rocks. There was, a, uh, there was two different stones. There was a dark stone and there was a white stone. And so you would ask a yes or no question of the Lord and the priest would pull out the stone. And so if it was a black stone, then his answer was no. If it was a white stone, then his answer was yes. And you say, well, that sounds like a magic eight ball, right? You know, what on, that's, that is the wackiest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, but here's the way you need to understand it. It might seem like a magic eight ball. It might seem like a wacky way to discern God's will. But, but it's no more wacky than the way Christians often try and perceive God's will by going with their emotions or going with their feelings or going with you know, whatever the case may be. Here's the deal. God established this in His Word. God is the one who, who, who initiated this and who established this in his work. And so the key to the effectiveness of the Urim and the Thummim was that it was, it was coming to God in the obedience of his word. This is how God says I'm to come to him in his word. This is how God says he's going to answer me in his word so that when the priest performed and wore that breastplate and, and, and took out that stone, he was in fact operating by faith according to God's word and doing what God would tell him to do. And this is exactly what you and I are called to do as Christians, that we are called to operate by faith. And when we seek to inquire of the Lord, we're to do so in confirmation with his word. Right, And so, the, the, it's not in my notes, but basically the, the short version for people who come to me and they say, well, how do I know? How do I discern the word of God, the, the will of God? How do I discern in my prayers how God's steering me, how he's leading me? 
Well, there's a number of ways that you and I do that when we're seeking the Lord. Number one, we're in prayer and we're seeking the Lord's confirmation in our hearts. We're also in His Word. We're seeking His Word to say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you this question. Show me in your Word how you would answer me. Oftentimes, and I think this is why it's so good to have a regular time of reading through God's Word, because frequently what will happen is we will be, we'll be considering an issue, we'll be praying over an issue, and all of a sudden, it's just, there it is, it's Tuesday the 31st, and this is where I was scheduled six months ago to be today, and I'm reading, and well, what do you know? God just spoke to me through His Word. And that's so much better than just taking your Bible and going, God, I need to know, speak to me. And how many times do we do that, right? Now, I'll ask you for a show of, time, a show of hands, how many times have you been seeking the Lord, looking for an answer, just through a regular time in your reading, and God shows up and He answers your, your prayer? See that? And that's why it's so healthy to be going through the Word, because then you know, it's like, well, I was scheduled to be here, I'm asking this prayer, God's confirmed it in His Word. And so we discern God's will in prayer through being in prayer, through going through His Word. We we discern His will through the wisdom of a multitude of counselors, the Bible says. And so I'm going through an issue, I'm seeking God's heart, I'm seeking his mind, and I seek out a godly counselor. That's the key, godly counselor. Some people like to talk to people just because they're easy to talk to, but they don't have godly wisdom to offer you. They only have worldly wisdom. Those are not effective counselors, those are counterproductive counselors. We need to seek out people who will say, look, I know you're feeling that way, but the Bible says this, and that they will strengthen us in the Lord. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And so prayer in his word, uh, the wisdom of a multitude of counselors, circumstantially, if it fits in and the, you know, all of these things line up and it's like, this is what his word's saying. This is how God's leading me in this still quiet voice and in prayer and just speaking to my heart. This is the counsel that I'm getting from other people. Hey, look, oh, circumstances are all, and they're all pointing in the same direction. Well, Lord, I think you're calling me to step in that direction. And so this is how the Lord speaks to us. So David is able to ask the Lord and to inquire of the Lord because he has the, the, the priest's son there now with the ephod. He asks the question and he, and he gives him the answer. And so the thing is, again, seems magic gate ball-ish, but man, it, 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 a lot of times what do we do as Christians? Rather than make the decisions in the way that I've just mentioned, a lot of times we try and discern the, the Lord's will through, well, through our fears, through our flesh, through our feelings, right? And, and feelings will train wreck you every single time. Now, a lot of people do that, and David could have done that. David could have in this situation, you know, as, as he's, you know, being directed in the situation... He, he could have gone just by the way of his feelings. And, and really, his feelings could have taken him in one or two places. His feelings could have been, you know, hey, Keilah's being attacked. And his feelings could have said, tell Saul about it. Ain't my problem. Right? He could have responded that way. Or the opposite end of the spectrum, because David's a fighting man and he's always up for a fight. They had him at fight. You know, so it could have been, oh, there's a fight? Yeah, let's go without ever inquiring of the Lord. But, but, but David, he's directed 
by God. And not only does David go to the Lord and inquire of the Lord, but, he, but he's willing to go a second time. And, and, and you know, because he, 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 he asked the Lord uh, there back at the beginning in verse 2, hey, should I go and do this? And God said yes. And then his, you know, all of his buddies are like, whoa, wait a minute. This is, this, we don't think that's a good idea. So what's he do? Well, he says, oh, I'll go back and ask him again. See, it shows humility, it shows godliness, and it shows wisdom on David's part to be willing to go back to God. You know, humility, because, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't go, hey, I'm the guy that God made king, how, do you, how dare you ask me? He's like, well, okay, I'll go back and ask him. Shows godliness, because he didn't say, well, it's not my responsibility, it's that moron who's in, you know, the, 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 the throne now, so let's let him deal with it. It shows wisdom. Because he didn't say, well, I'll, I can do it. I, I'd, love to, I'd love to go fight. And what I love about this is that David doesn't come to the Lord. When he goes and asks him, he doesn't come with his mind already made up. So many times we do that, don't we? When we're praying, when we're seeking the Lord, seeking to be directed by God, but really we want to direct God. We want to give God our directions. We want to be able to tell him, well, now here's what you ought to do, God. I think about the disciples in, in, in Acts chapter 2. Jesus said, hey, you you wait for my Holy Spirit. And Peter, who doesn't wait very well, he doesn't leave the place where Jesus told him to wait. But he's like, well, I got to do something while I'm here. I know what I can do. Technically, I'm waiting here. But we can replace Judas. And so they figure out, well, who are we going to nominate to to replace Judas? You know, and they they come up with a a couple of guys. And they're they're like, oh, okay, Lord, here you go. Which one of these two do you want to choose? He kind of got his mind made up. Well, we've, we've narrowed it down for you, God. We've done the heavy lifting here. So just tell us which one of these guys you want. God's like, I don't want door number one. I don't want door number two. I want door number Z. I want Saul of Tarshish. They're like, you mean the guy that's killing Christians right now? That's the guy you want? Now, God doesn't tell them any of that. They just go, oh, let's see. It's going to be one of these two. God, hey, you know, so what do they do? They throw the dice to figure it out. Let's flip a coin. Which guy is it going to be? Not a good way to discern the Lord's heart and mind. And David, he doesn't come to God with his mind made up. Well, thirdly and finally, we see that David, or not finally, but thirdly, we see that David was double-crossed by his friends. See, David's, again, he's, he's coming to the Lord. He's coming to the place where, okay, God, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to ask you for mercy. I'm going to, I'm going to trust you by faith. I'm going to fulfill my duty. I'm going to step out in what I'm supposed to do. And so we're looking at this. And as he's doing that, like I said, following God doesn't mean it's just a a smooth trail without any rough road. Here we see he's going to encounter some problems. He's double-crossed by his friends. Uh, Pick it up in verse 7. It said, And Saul was told that David had gone to Kaliah. And so Saul said, God had delivered him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. He's like, oh, he's, into, he's in a place and I can go. All I got to do is, is get the gate covered and he can't escape. This is Saul's thinking. Then Saul, verse 8, called to all the people together for war to go down to Kaliah to besiege David and his men. See, he, Saul wouldn't go down to Kaliah to protect them when they were being attacked by the Philistines. But he'll go down there in the New York second, right, just to get David. And so, verse 9, when David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And then David said, 
O Lord God of Israel. And notice he asks a yes or no question. He says, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Kaliah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the man of Kaliah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And then David said, Will the men of Kaliah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. And so David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Kaliah, and they went wherever they could go. And then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Kaliah, and so he halted the expedition. So David was double-crossed by his friends here. You would have thought if you were a resident of Kaliah and David had just come and saved your bacon that, that you would be beholden to the guy. You would think that you'd be a little bit more loyal than that. And you'd be wrong. They were going to sell him right down the river. They double-crossed him. Now, why? Why did they double-cross him? Here's why. No doubt they had heard about what Saul did to the city of Nob, right? When when Saul suspected that the priests were in cahoots with David, and they they weren't, but even the suspicion caused him to, to kill everybody, send Doeg down there and kill everybody in the whole town. And so the people of Kaliah, they're afraid of Saul. And, and this is why they respond in this way. Now, We're going to come back to this point in a minute. But, but for right now, let me just take, say this. Take note of how David responds to this. He's been betrayed by these guys. He's been stabbed in the back by these guys. He's been double-crossed by these guys. And how does David handle it? He handles it with grace. He doesn't say, you backstabbing, ungrateful, and, you know, take retribution on the people. You're going to betray me to Saul? I'll tell you what, how about that? How about I, how about I attack? You thought the Philistines are going to hurt you. Right? And, and that's what we do sometimes, right? He doesn't do that. He responds with grace. Why? Well, I think that he understood what their motivation was. He's like, okay, they're afraid. And Saul just killed all the people in Nob. They think they're going to be just like that, and that's a reasonable fear. Now, it doesn't make what they did right, but, but David being in the place where he could understand, listen, it helped him to show grace. And that's the same for us. When people hurt us, it's helpful for us to understand where they're coming from. Again, what they, what they did might, you can't, you can't explain it away in the sense, or you can't excuse it away, but sometimes understanding where people are coming from helps you to give them grace. Something else to consider here is that, listen, God allowed it. God allowed this to happen in David's life. We're going to get there eventually, but when we get to 2 Samuel in chapter 16, you're going to see a situation where Saul is betrayed by his son, and, and his son, you know, goes and Absalom and he, and he you know, steals the kingdom from him, basically, and Saul's, or David's running for his life now. 
And David's got a few faithful men with him and they're beating it out of, of Jerusalem. And as they're getting out of town, just with his son at his heels and all, Shimei steps up. Shimei is, is a descendant of the house of Saul and he begins cursing David out. Just cursing him out, throwing rocks at him and all of his people. And one of the generals with David, he's like, you want me to take this guy's head off? And David's response is, let him talk. Because what do you know? It might, you know, God's, it might be God just speaking through him. It might be that, you know, I need to get chewed out. It might just be that I got this coming to me. And, and, and so what happens is there's just this healthy attitude just that says God's allowing this. God's got a work he wants to do in it. I had a couple that came to see me recently, and, and uh, one of them had been betrayed by the other. And they were hurting, man. And, and the one especially who had been betrayed was angry, not only with their spouse, but they were also angry at God. And their, their attitude was, why, why, why did God allow this? Why didn't God stop this? And so I explained, listen, God is every bit as much grieved over this betrayal as you are. More so, probably. But listen, you know, God's given to us a free will, and, and, and there's, there, there's implications of that. There's consequences with that. But listen, God never stops being God. And what you have to understand and what you have to believe and what you need to look at is, yeah, okay, God's going to, he's going to work through this situation. We know that in all things, God works together for good to those that love God and are the called according to His purpose. So you need to understand, prayerfully, God brings healing and restoration to your marriage. God's going to deal with your spouse. But also, you need to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror because God's allowed this in your life, which means He's got a work that He wants to do in you through this. And even though it, it comes about in a very wrong way, Listen, God can, can and does work all things together for good, and so he's doing a work in your life. Well, like I said, we're going to come back to this point in a minute, so just place a, a marker there. But the, the fourth point was that David was defended by Jonathan. David was defended by Jonathan. We'll pick it up in verse 14. Uh, and David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph, Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose, and he went to David in the woods, and he strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. And so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. David was defended by Jonathan. Now, they're there in Ziph. Ziph was a town below the southern tip of the Dead Sea. And, and, and if you know the area, it is barren, it is uncomfortable and hard and difficult land. This is where they were. It's a not easy place to be. Now you add to that that Saul is pursuing him daily, trying to kill him. And all of this makes for a very difficult, very hard environment. 
As a matter of fact, we get a clue about this environment and God's purposes for it. In the name of it, it's Ziph, which, which literally translated means refining place. David should have known when he ran there, <laughs> refining place. You are going to be refined. You're going to be ground down. Think of it like a gym. What's going on is that God still... Remember, God's fashioning David for the kingdom. He's fashioning him for the throne. And so David here, even in the midst of, oh, I'm doing my duty, I'm doing the things that I should do. Listen, God still is doing a refining process in his life. Just because you're going through difficulty and hardship does not necessarily mean you're not in the Lord's will. And so this is what's going on. David's in a refining place. Think of it like a gym. Okay, it's not bonbons on the couch with your little whoopee, you know, you you go to the gym and it's hard and it's pain and it's sweat, but man, you can't argue with the results. And, and, And that's the thing here. Now, God in his grace, even though he's got David in the refiner's fire in this refining place and he's and he's grinding on him, God in his grace, he he gives, well, he provides Jonathan to David to comfort him, to encourage him. Listen, we all need Jonathans in our lives. No man is an island. We, we cannot do this Christian thing alone. We are called to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to spur one another on towards love and good deeds and to encourage one another and to strengthen one another. And so we all need Jonathans in our lives. And listen, we all need to be Jonathans to someone else. This is a responsibility for all of us. And, you know, I, I want you to see that exa- what is exactly that Jonathan did for David tells us there that he strengthened his hand in God. Listen, Jonathan couldn't rescue David, but he could strengthen his hand in God. Jonathan couldn't give David all the answers. Why is God putting me through it? I don't know. But he could strengthen his hand in God. Jonathan couldn't stay even with David. I'll stay with you. I'm, I'm right by your side. I won't leave. He couldn't even do that. But he could strengthen his hand in God. And how was it that he strengthened him? He said, look, don't fear. But listen, rather, you've got to remember the past and you've got to remember your future. That's essentially what he said. Because he said, look, my father won't lay a hand on you. God chose you, man. God chose you. Let me remind you of your past. God chose you. He says, you're going to be the king. God anointed you. Remember, he chose you and then he sent Samuel and Samuel anointed you with oil. He's reminding him, strengthening him in the Lord. He's addressing his fears. And he says, when you rule, I'll be with you. Now that's half true and half false. Because David will rule. But this is the last time they're going to see each other. Jonathan's going to die. Now, does that make what he said and these other things untrue? No, it doesn't. But Jonathan giving David the encouragement of, hey, this is what God has said to you. He just makes an assumption about himself. God hadn't... We found out painfully this morning, God promises tomorrow to no man. But but Jonathan, he's strengthening him in, in this way. As Christians, we're called to strengthen and encourage one another. We read about in in Romans chapter 12 the gifts that are given. And one of the gifts it's talking about is the gift of encouragement. We're called to to encourage one another. 
In Acts chapter 15, it says there that Judas and Silas said much to encourage and strengthen the brethren. Uh, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in 1 Thessalonians, we, we read over and over again about Paul sending men to these different churches to strengthen and to encourage them. Paul exhorted the Corinthians, he exhorted the, the Thessalonians, he exhorted the Hebrews in Rome to encourage one another. Here's what he says in Hebrews 3. He says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. In other words, he's like, don't let the day end without bringing encouragement to your brethren. It's exactly what Jonathan does here. And so you notice there in verse 18, they make a covenant. This isn't a new covenant. They've already made a covenant. This is just a reiteration, a reinforcing of their existing covenant. And therein is what encouragement produces. Encouragement produces this sweet bond of unity and this sweet connection of brotherhood where they encourage one another. Paul told the Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, strengthening one another in the Lord, sharing the Scriptures with one another. Are you a Jonathan to somebody? Do you have a Jonathan to be that to you? We all need that. Well, we continue, verse 19. It says, then the Ziphites came up to Saul at at Gibeah, saying, is David not hiding with us in the strongholds, in the woods, in the hill of of Hakalah, uh, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. They're not blessed of the Lord by selling out the Lord's anointed, but this Saul is deluded. And so he says to him, verse 22, please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there. For I'm told he's very crafty. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I'll go with you. Go spy him, go spy on him for me. Give me all the info and I'll go back with you. And it shall be if he is in the land that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. We'll return here to the third point that I told you that we're going to hold on that David was double crossed by his friends because here he's double crossed by friends again. Just one right after the another. And for all we know, they were motivated, motivated by the same thing. Wow, look what, look what Saul did to the people in Nob. Man, we got we to rat him out. Now, for every Jonathan that you have in your life, you're probably going to have three or four Ziphites. That's just, that's just the, the reality. That's the ABCs of, of me and you. Is that for every encourager, you're going to have this double crosser. You're going to have somebody that burns you. It happens. And, 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 you know, Jesus went through it. Jesus had his own betrayer. So, so it's important for us to, to consider here, how did David react to this? How did he respond to this? Because this is a big question for all of us. I won't ask for a show of hands, but everybody here has been betrayed on one, one level or another. Everybody here has had a friend stab you in the back. So we have, we have no, no idea 
how close to home this hits. And there's, there's a lot of real estate that we can, we can cover and gain here if we get a handle on how did David handle this. With that in mind, turn to Psalm 54. Why do I have you go to Psalm 54? Well, because it tells us in the introduction to Psalm 54 that this was a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding with us? In other words, David wrote down all of his thoughts and feelings and how he reacted when he was double-crossed, when he was betrayed. And so this gives us a really great insight into his heart and what God's doing. He says, save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen up against me and oppressors have sought after my life. They've not set God before them. And then he adds the word Selah, which basically means, why don't you stop and think about that for a while. He's like, look, they, look what they've done to me. <coughs> I'm crying out to you. I see what they've done to me, but you know what? They're not taking the marching orders from you. They don't hear from you. Behold, verse 4, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he, God, has delivered me out of all trouble. My eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. Listen, here's the secret. How did David handle being betrayed and stabbed in the back? He focuses on God. That's what he does. You go, that's an overly simplistic answer. Yeah, but so often when somebody wrongs you, what do you focus on? You focus on the one that's wronged you, don't you? You've got, you've got pages and pages of notes, like, you know, they did this, and they did that, and you've got times, and you've got dates, and you've got, you've got an accurate recording, and you go over it, and over it, and over it, and you come to the same outcome every time. They're a jerk, man, look at all the, I've got a strong case against this person, right? So often, instead of focusing on God, we focus on our foe. Alan Redpath said this, he said, if you begin with God, your enemies grow small, if you begin with the enemy, you may never reach God. That's worth taking a walk with right there. Listen, here's my question for you. Who do you need to turn over to God today? As you think about that, I just want to add this. There are many Christians who can't get over Kila or Ziph. A lot of Christians that have had people in Kila betray them and they've had people in Ziph betray, betray them. And what you need to understand about betrayal in the, in the ABCs of Christianity, this is, this is a mandatory course. It is not optional. This, 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 is, this is not an elective for you. It's a mandatory course that you're going to be betrayed because God wants to refine you. And so if you've been betrayed, you need to learn how to handle that by turning the person over to the Lord and by focusing on the Lord because God will use it in your life. Well, my fifth and final point is that David was delivered by God. Back in 1 Samuel 23, we pick it up in verse 24. And here's what we read. So they arose and they went to Ziph before Saul. 
But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. So Saul's men are going around. They're each, each different side of the mountain. They've got him cut out, you know, they're a pincher movement. They, they're, they're outflanking him and they've got, they've got him surrounded, so to speak. And so, you know, they're closing in on him. That's the picture here. But, verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore, Saul returned from pursuing David and he went against the Philistines. And so they called that place the rock of escape. And then David went up from there and he dwelt in strongholds at En Gedi. David was delivered by God. And you'll notice there in verse 28, it talks about the rock of escape. It's interesting, this, this word in the Hebrew, it carries the idea of a slippery rock. The understanding is a, a rock of slipping away. This is where I slipped away from my enemy kind of thing. And you know, here's the thing, it's reminiscent of the stone of Ezeal that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Remember when we were there and Jonathan, he told David, okay, you know what, I don't know if my dad's really trying to kill you or not, so before you run away, go hide yourself at the stone of Ezeal and you wait there for word from God. And we talked about it when we were there and we talked about that the stone of Ezeal, it, 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 it translated, it's the stone that shows the way. And we looked at how... Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the stone in our life. He's that stone that shows the way. Well, not only is Jesus the stone that, that, that shows the way, but he's our rock of escape. He is the, the, the rock of slipping away. Listen, I think that's a lesson for some this morning. For some of you, I, I, I think, man, you've been trying to escape. And, and you've tried all of the different methods that you can think of to escape. Maybe it's been drugs or alcohol or promiscuity or hobbies or vacation or, you know, what else can I buy to escape the reality that I'm in? Listen, the rock of escape isn't found in any of those things. The rock of escape is found in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. That's his name. He is the rock of escape. 